welcome to the Made to Lead podcast, a show where we tell the personal and professional stories of amazing people of African descent who are leading in their own way. I'm your host, Aziz Garuba, and on each episode, I interview a dynamic individual and discuss their achievements, challenges, dreams, and aspirations, and the lessons they've learned along the way. These candid conversations are meant to showcase their superb talents and leadership philosophies with the hope that it inspires you because you were also made to lead. If you're listening for the first time, I encourage you to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Made to Lead Show. Also visit our website, madetolead.co, for more information about each episode. All right, so my guest today is Lysandra Rickards. She is the founder and CEO of Soul Career. She's also the former CEO of the Richard Branson Center of Entrepreneurship and a Harvard MBA alumnus. Uh, she helps executives, entrepreneurs, and high-achieving professionals succeed by connecting them to knowledge opportunities and systems that support their growth while staying aligned to their authentic selves. When she was CEO of the Richard Branson Center of Entrepreneurship, she coached over 220 entrepreneurs, created online programs for over 2,500 entrepreneurs, built a team of 12, and made the center a player in the venture capital space. Now she's thrilled to lead Soul Career, which is a coaching company supported by online courses that helps executives, professionals, and entrepreneurs discover their life's work, lead authentically, and build powerful legacies. So Lysandra has also done uh, economic research for the book Super Freakonomics. Uh, she's worked as a management consultant in the private equity group at Bain & Company in New York City. She's consulted for the Ministry of Finance in Jamaica and worked in corporate strategy for a Caribbean conglomerate. Uh, she's got an MBA, as I mentioned, with honors from Harvard Business School and a Bachelor of Arts in Economics with honors from the University of Chicago. So Lysandra, it's great to have you on the show. Uh, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. And just to uh, uh, preface, she joins us all the way from Jamaica uh, as well. So that, that's where she's currently based. Um, so, Lysandra, uh, we just want to talk through uh, getting to know you a bit more. Uh, so let, let's start with uh, your background. You know, just tell us uh, your, your life story and how you got to this point uh, uh, in your career. Wow. So I was born in Kingston, Jamaica and grew up here until I was 18 when I left for college in the US. And growing up in Jamaica, you know, it's an island. Um, and so we have a strong sense of community. And my parents instilled in me a real respect for education and what it can do in your life. And so education was the key to be free, to have a lot of freedom of choice. And um, going to school in the U.S. was the big thing in my household. If you could go to college in the U.S., then you're set for life. Um, and so I actually went to a, a high school in Jamaica where U.S. colleges and universities recruited at my high school. And so I remember, actually, we had University of Chicago come to our school and present. And they talked a lot about economics and their strength in economics. And by that time, I had decided I wanted to be an economist. I wanted to be minister of finance for Jamaica and solve Jamaica's problems so that all my friends and myself would want to live there, grow up together, raise families together, have kids together. And that was my dream. So I wanted to be a PhD in economics so I could be minister of finance. And so I applied to the University of Chicago 
I got in with a full scholarship and I left for Chicago having never seen snow in my life. Wow. I had never <laughs> experienced a real cold ever before. I was just like, this is going to be a big city, a new experience, college experience. I'm so excited. Nice. Nice. Very nice. <laughs> how, how was that transition for you? Just, you know, moving over to the U.S. from, from Jamaica. Well, moving to Chicago was very, very difficult. Um, I saw snow for the first time, as I said, and that was fun. But once we got into deep, deep winter where you had sunlight maybe four hours for the day and it was dark most of the time and really cold, that was a very, very hard transition for me because I come from a land of eternal sunshine. Yep, yep. <laughs> Right. The worst we get is some rain and hurricanes. <laughs> and so um, I, I think I had seasonal affective disorder um, where you get very lethargic and, you know, not wanting to do anything because it's so dark and cold outside, um, which was the complete opposite of my personality. I'm very vibrant and outgoing and lively. Um, and it was very hard for me. But even though it was hard, I still was really focused on getting good grades um, and, uh, you know, being perfect out in my grades and in college. And I worked really, really hard um, and had a fantastic GPA, but I ended up burning myself out in a major, major way. Mm. Um, but I ended up graduating with honors, as you said. And then I came back to Jamaica for a year and then I got into Harvard Business School and did my MBA there. And that was an incredible, life-changing experience. So where do you want me to double-click on? <laughs> so, yeah, let, let's, let's talk about the, the life in, in Chicago, uh, your yeah. experiences in, in undergrad. Because again, um, you know, making such a huge transition, leaving the country of your birth, things that you've, you've known entirely, uh, moving to, to, a, to a different educational institution because, you know, as you said, that was the highlight. That was the ambition for a lot of people is to get their education in the United States. While you were there, um, you know, you, you, you mentioned you experienced the burnout. Like, let's talk about that and double click on that for a minute. Why do you feel that, you know, you got to that point of burnout? Was it, you know, because, hey, I, I'm here to achieve something. I need to do it at all costs or just that the, the environment and the learning style was just different from what you were used to? It was a combination of both, for sure. Um, University of Chicago has a very rigorous undergraduate program. I think it has one of the toughest core requirements program in the U.S., or it did at the time in 2002 when I got there. And so I was doing very advanced mathematics classes, um, not just calculus, but analysis in real numbers, which is all pre-proving old mathematical theorems. I did wow. honors analysis, honors, econometrics, honors, statistics, because I was trying to get into a PhD program and I was in one of the toughest economics schools in the country. Um, so the program itself was quite rigorous, but you know what? It really taught me how to think. Um, University of Chicago transformed my brain and really made it a real powerhouse brain. Uh, but yes, the program was, itself was quite rigorous. And I also was a perfectionist within that program. So the lowest grade I got in the first two years was an A minus in one of the hardest undergraduate programs in the country. 
which means that I pushed myself to the brink in order to get the perfect grades because I'm coming from an environment where the grades and the education, that is your path to freedom. You have to do well. That's how I was trained by my parents. And so I would, you know, everyone does all-nighters in, in college, but um, I had physical manifestations of stress. If I didn't sleep, my hair would start falling out in chunks, right? Um, my, I couldn't eat. I would get this burning sensation in my mouth, and it was so bad that I couldn't swallow food. Or I actually got carpal tunnel syndrome. I got acid reflux. I got every stress-related illness you can think of because I pushed myself so hard. And then the mental toll that it takes on you, apart from the physical toll, where you, I mean, for me, a deep burnout is an existential crisis where what is the point of all of this effort? Everything feels meaningless and empty and numb. You're just going through the motions and you feel numb. Um, and so that was, yeah, that was very hard for me combined with the weather took a toll combined with how rigorous the program was. It was a very, very tough experience. Wow. And what I did to kind of break out of that was there was a year abroad program and I wanted to become fluent in Spanish. So I decided to go on a year abroad in Spain, in Seville, Spain. And oh. that really gave me my life back, really. Yeah, that's a good country to, to, take a, to take an exchange in sunshine for most of the year so that's that's pretty good how, how was that experience for you transformational amazing wonderful spain is just an incredible country from the north to the south i was in the south um so the art the architecture the food the people the language the history the culture the flamenco everything was just amazing and i was a 20 year old girl in europe for the first time i traveled to Lisbon and Paris and London and Rome and I just experienced more life than I had in my previous 20 years and I realized that life was more about more than education and perfect grades and getting this degree and getting that degree it was about the quality of the relationships you had the people that were in your life the life experiences you had the travel food culture having great conversations over a glass of wine or a bottle of sangria with your friends and listening to flamenco guitar. That was my life for a year and I just loved it. Nice. W would you go back? I did go back for the first time in 15 years oh, this wow. year. No, actually last year in, in May, 2019. And I felt, I fell in love again. I just felt the same way that I did back then. And I, quit my job at the Branson Center in order to move back to Spain, actually. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. Very good. <laughs> I planned for this year before coronavirus hit and just changed all my plans. Oh, dear. But I loved it that much. <laughs> Incredible. So um, I, I want to delve deeper into something you brought up. Uh, the, you know, you mentioned the physical manifestation of stress uh, yeah. when you were an undergrad. When did you realize that that was what was happening? Because I think a lot of the times when we're, we're young and we're, we're going through these motions, uh, we don't necessarily put the labels like, oh, I'm stressed and this is what's happening to me. Um, how, how, did you, how did you reconcile that that was what was going on? And, and, and what have you done since then to sort of manage that uh, aspect of your life? Oh, great question. Yeah. Um, 
the food thing, the eat, not being able to eat because my mouth was burning um, when I, whenever I would sleep, when I would have an all night or when I couldn't sleep at all because of work. And then next week I couldn't eat anything. So I went to the doctors in Chicago and they told me it was stress related. They couldn't find any other reason except that. And then from the being unable to eat, it went into like a lockjaw where my jaw would get so tight and tense that I wouldn't even be able to speak properly, you know? And then from there it went to acid reflux. Um, I was, I'm a migraine sufferer. So I would have migraines constantly and the medication I was taking for migraines really damaged my stomach. And so I had a lot of stomach problems and they said it flares up in times of high stress. And then I got carpal tunnel syndrome because I wasn't using good posture when I was on the laptop all the time, typing away, typing away. So I went to the doctors like, why are my arms tingling and cramping up and hurting like this? And they diagnosed me with um, carpal tunnel syndrome. And then it actually was in business school where uh, when I was trying to make the decision what to do after graduation, and that was in the middle of the global financial recession in 2008 to 2010, my hair fell out in clumps and I had like patches of bald spots on my head, which is called alopecia areata, which is a stress-related illness. So it was a series of things that got worse and worse over time. And it really took me going to the doctor and saying, what's happening? And they diagnosed me as being too stressed out. (laughs) Wow. Wow. So so how have you managed that since? Because this is not something that I assume just goes away. No. Um, So you sort of have to actively manage, you know, your workload, your environments, the situations you get into. How has that been since since graduation? Right. I mean, yes, I am extremely mindful about that. Uh, And it's one of the reasons I made the decision not to continue in the private equity group in a consulting firm in New York City, because I felt like I would end up in a hospital working like that. Um, Because I know the toll that that kind of thing takes on my body. So I actively choose career paths that allow me to balance my life. I choose companies that revere that and don't um, punish you for choosing balance way of working. And I have, uh, I think my wealth creation, my ability to create wealth has taken a hit, you know, from, because you have a Harvard MBA, you're expected to get those high salaries, right? Those high salaries come with a lot of stress. So I have taken a salary hit in order to manage my health and my stress. Because can you imagine if just school got me to that point in stress? Can you imagine me as an investment banker or me as a management consultant consultant flying all over the country, working from 9 a.m. to 3 a.m. every day, which was my summer internship experience, and being unable to, to rest properly and what that would have done to my body. So I chose my health over my salary, my income generating potential, really. Wow. Wow. It, it's a tough decision to make, especially when you've invested so much uh, in your education and, you know, you're not necessarily reaping those great benefits that come with having Harvard on your resume, you know, uh, and, and, you know, just dropping that in conversations. Let, let's, let's talk even about how you, how you made the decision to, to go to Harvard, because you've moved back to Jamaica now. Um, you've, been, you've been there, you've been working for a year. 
how did uh, Harvard come up in, in the next phase of your life? Well, it started when I was working on the book Freakonomics and Super Freakonomics. My professor of economics at the University of Chicago, Steve Levitt, he's the author of Freakonomics and Super Freakonomics, and I became his research assistant after I graduated from the University of Chicago. So I spent one year as a research assistant in Chicago before I moved back to Jamaica. And this was all preparation to do a PhD in economics, right? I was still on that track. So if you want to do a PhD in economics, you have to spend some time as a research assistant to really understand what it means to pump out academic research at a high level. And I did that for a year. And towards the end of the year, I went to Steve and I was like, I don't think this life is for me. This is just really boring. (laughs) (laughs) I was running statistical regressions in Stata, a statistical program. We did, we used MATLAB. We were running Ruby. I was a programmer and a mathematician. This isn't what economics was in my mind, right? But I would be having lunch with Austin Goolsby, who was a professor at the time who ended up being the chairman of the National Economic Council of the U.S. when President Obama became became president. Remember now that Chicago, before Obama became president, it wasn't on the map as much as after he became president. So all these guys I had lunch with, Obama lived two blocks from my house in Hyde Park. In Chicago, right? That's amazing. (laughs) Um, A guy that I dated ended up being his the White House chef. The guys I had lunch with when I was working on Freakonomics ended up on the National Economic Council, right? Um, Which is really crazy. But this was 2006. It wasn't 2008. So in 2006... Um, I told Steve, you know, this life of writing academic papers and getting published and running statistical regressions and doing residuals analysis and running Monte Carlos, all this language that I don't use anymore that I've purged from my mind, this was not me. I have way too much personality. I'm too, you know, bubbly for this life. And he agreed with me. And he said, you know what, Lissandra, you shouldn't be an academic. You should be a CEO. And I'm going to write you a recommendation for Harvard Business School. Wow. Because Steve had gone to, had done his PhD at Harvard um, Graduate School. And he was like, it's the best school. Go there. Go do business school. Become a CEO. That's what you should do. <laughs> that is phenomenal. That, that That's an amazing story. I mean, just being in the, uh, associated with the right people. Uh, certainly unlocked this glorious path for you, um, you know, in, in terms of getting into Harvard and then everything that else that came after that. Um, so you did, you did your, your, you know, your internship at, at Bain uh, in private equity, and you decide that that's, that's, again, that's not the life that, that you want in terms of the workload uh, and, and stress levels. So what happens after Harvard, after graduation, where do you go next? And, and how did you end up, uh, you know, in the Richard Branson Center for Entrepreneurship? Yeah, um, I feel like, gosh, in order to understand that piece, when I moved back to Jamaica, I didn't want to be an economist or an academic anymore, right? So now I was like, okay, what do I do with my life? My whole life since high school, that's what I wanted. So now let me rethink what my life could be. 
And then I decided, well, I might as well be a consultant because at least I'll get insight into a lot of different industries and then I can decide where I fit in. So when I got to Bain and management consulting and I ended up in the private equity group, even though I had asked at the time specifically not to be put in finance. I wanted exposure to other industries. I wanted to do like consumer packaged goods like candy or something fun. I didn't want to be in finance. But this was 2009, the middle of the global financial recession. And so most of the work going to consulting firms was coming from the financial industry. They were looking at distressed debt investment. And so they put me on PEG, which is like, PEG is a private equity group, which is like a banking job. You're working nonstop. I did due diligence after due diligence after due diligence. And again, it felt empty and burnout and exhausting and stressful. And so I felt very lost after that. I didn't know, I, I didn't want to be in government. I didn't want to be in academics. I didn't want to be in management consulting. So what did I like? Who was I? What, I don't know. I didn't, hadn't taken any time off from getting good grades and going to the best schools in order to understand who I was and what I liked and what I actually wanted to do with my life. So what happened was um, when you graduate in 20, when I graduated in 2010, in the middle of the financial recession, if you didn't want to be a banker or consultant, there were no jobs for you. It was a hiring freeze at that time. That was 10 years ago. And so I moved back to Jamaica again. And this time it felt like a massive failure. The first time I moved back to Jamaica, it felt like a break, like, let me just breathe before I go back to school again. The second time, I felt I had fallen from this great height. I had left Harvard. I had left New York, left Bain and this amazing six-figure salary, came back into my parents' house, into the same room I lived in when I was 18 years old with no job and no idea of what do I want to do with my life? What was it all for? Was it all meaningless? Why did I even go to Harvard? Now I have all this student loan debt and I'm back where I started. How did you, how did you reconcile that? Because it's, it, it's a lot to take in and especially uh, from a mental perspective, like a mental health perspective or even an identity. How did, how did you resolve that and, and come out of that, that feeling um, to, to end up progressing in the rest of your career? Right. So it took three years. It's not a fast recovery from feeling so lost and so fallen. Um, so I basically had to try to find a job and I did um, and I hated it. And then I found another job and I didn't like that one. And then I found another job. So I had three jobs in three years. And it was really, I was telling myself that, well, I left the U.S., I'm back in Jamaica. If I don't like what I'm doing, it doesn't make any sense anyway. Because the salaries in Jamaica are nothing compared to what they were. So I went from six figures to like 75% pay cut. I think I calculated it for this podcast. Ouch, <laughs> okay. ouch. <laughs> um, and, but during this time... I kept asking myself, what do you like? What do you like? Because I didn't like any business that I had been in. I didn't like any of it. So what do I like? So I did a million, well, more like 15 psychometric tests. 
I did all these visioning exercises, like what would you do if you didn't have to work for money? I did all these uh, journaling and what came up was I really am a scholar at heart, <laughs> right? So I love reading books. I love writing. I love teaching. I like travel and, um, and I needed, and I liked having influence in the sense of convincing people, negotiating, training people. So my psychometric test really brought that up. Um, and my plan at the time when I left my last job before the Branson Center was just to find a way back to Europe, buy a plane ticket and be a waitress and write a book and have a travel blog and forget I went to Harvard, forget business, forget all of that part of my life and just be an illegal immigrant blogger in Spain. <laughs> <laughs> That's an awesome career path. <laughs> And, and a bartender. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, I mean, you, you you do get to meet some interesting people through through that, especially if you're in Spain. You know, a lot of interesting people travel through there. Um, I'll give you a little piece of it. I'm an ENFP on Myers-Briggs. I don't know if you know much about the Myers-Briggs yes. type indicator MBTI, right? What are you, Aziz? Um, I believe I'm an INTJ. Right. Uh, yes. A lot of people that go to business school are TJs, right? Thinkers, and judgers. So that yeah. means you work well in the corporate world. Yes. ENFPs are the most bohemian, the most nomadic. We are journalists. We're writers. We're poets. We're like the free spirits on the Myers-Briggs type indicator. So for me, someone like me to have gone through such structured, rigorous programs, that is why I burnt out because I was so far away from my true self. I was trying to force myself into what I thought success looked like and it caused me to get really sick from stress and it caused me to burn out and it caused me to walk away from everything and give everything up to try to get closer to myself again. Mm. So learning all of that, being a nomad in Europe sounded perfect for me and yeah, I would be broke and poor, but at least I would be myself and make myself happy and stop trying to make other people happy, stop trying to live other people's dreams and stop trying to fit myself into what other people thought success looked like. So with, with that personality type, then um, the work that you did, do, do you feel that that also helped you with the work that you did at the Richard Branson Center uh, in terms of being able to help other people achieve their own dreams, uh, you know, through the coaching that you did? Was, was, that, was that helpful at all? Absolutely. Richard Branson Center was where I found myself. It's what taught me what I love doing in work, at work, right? So right when I made that decision to move back to Spain, a friend of mine from the Harvard Network sent out an email blast saying she was the CEO of the Branson Center at the time. She went to Kennedy School and she was hiring part-time for a few positions at the Branson Center, three days a week to work, and one of the jobs was to train entrepreneurs in business principles, help them learn how to be better business people. And I would work for three days a week, very low pay, 75% <laughs> off of my peak. Okay. Sure. <laughs> Imagine that. Yeah. Um, but I decided, you know, I just wanted to be happy. I didn't care about anything else at the time. So I went for it. I got the job. I was only going to do it for six months and then moved to Spain. But six years later, was when I ended up, no, seven years later, it was when I ended up leaving. 
and I became CEO three years after I joined and I was CEO for three years. So yeah, I came, became CEO four years after I joined and was CEO for three years. Nice. So, so what made you stay? What made me stay was exactly what you asked. My personality type was a very strong match for the Virgin entity, the Virgin organization. It was a very strong match for what we were doing at the Branson Center. And it filled me with so much purpose and passion and joy. And I woke up. It was hard work, right? Everybody looks at Richard Branson and thinks everything is fun and glamorous at Virgin. And it's not. We did a lot on um, on limited resources. We helped a lot of entrepreneurs. It's a very rigorous organization with very strong board and management. So I worked really long hours, but it didn't feel the way it felt in New York. It felt like I had a mission and that the work I did was directly impacting someone else's life. And I was helping other people to self-actualize and to live their dreams, as you said, so I started out training entrepreneurs. I created a program that was based on case studies like we did at Harvard Business School. And then it transitioned into an online training program where we touched close to 3,000 people now. Then it transitioned into away from startups and we started working with scale-ups and we helped them to get capital, pitch in front of investors, how to raise money. Um, we did We raised grants from the government for... I think 40 entrepreneurs. I personally coached over 200 entrepreneurs and the work was rigorous, but very fulfilling. And that's how I ended up staying there for seven years. The other thing is that ENFPs need a lot of variety. They need a lot of change. And every year was different at the Branson Center. We were constantly trying to be ahead of the market, ahead of the game. And that kept me there as well. It was an amazing experience. So it sounds like you found your place um, in the world, uh, despite what you felt were setbacks uh, and, you know, thinking that you had failed in, in everything else that you did leading up to then. Um, let's 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 build on that and talk about, you know, your biggest moment of, of failure, you know, outside of a feeling that you had wasted time going to, you know, going down the educational path that you took. What do you think is another or, or what can you say is another moment uh, where you felt that you had failed um, and what did you learn from it? Um, yeah, so becoming a CEO, uh, it's something that it's not the same as being a high performing peer. And leaders will say this, but you don't really understand what it's like to lead until you're in a leadership position and you have people that report to you and people whose livelihoods depend on you. And so making that, tra making that transition from a high-performing individual performer into leading a team of 12 people was difficult in that first year because not only did I make that transition, but we relocated the headquarters of the Branson Center from the tourism capital of Jamaica and Montego Bay to the business capital of Kingston. That was a massive project. We reopened in a new location with Richard Branson. We had three relaunch events on one day. When we make a move that big in Jamaica by Jamaican law, you have to make your team redundant at the old location. 
So I had to make the entire team redundant, the team that had hired me, that had been with me the whole time through the four years. And I had to hire a brand new team in Kingston. So I tore down the old office, built up a new office from scratch, from just a concrete shell, planned three relaunch events with Richard Branson and had to fire or make redundant my whole team and hire a brand new team all within three or four months, three months, actually. I had three months to do all of that. Goodness. So add on top of that now, after all of that was over by August, I was burnt out again. I was exhausted. I almost collapsed in my office and had to take a week off because I was so tired. And that I didn't recover from being tired like that for about another six months. So the big failure that I had in my first year was I had this brand new team. Most of them were new to the industry and I was so tired that I couldn't be there for them in the way that a leader needs to be, especially when it's a new team. Leadership of a team that size, 10, 12 people is about presence. It's about communication. It's about connection. The team needs to feel they, they came to this job for you, the leader. They didn't come for, they came for the mission. They came for the brand, but they also came because they wanted me to be their leader. And I was too tired to do it. So what happened at the end of that year was just some strife on the team that I think that could have been avoided if I wasn't so exhausted. Mm. Um, And that felt like a big failure to me because I, as an ENFP, I consider myself to be a people person. As a peer, I was very well liked on the team. I was everybody's friend. As a leader, I wasn't everybody's friend. And people were disappointed in me. And I felt disconnected from the team because I was so tired. And so I had to come from that now and really rebuild as a leader with my team in the following two years after that first year. So that also felt like a big failure from my perspective, right. maybe not from the outside perspective. Oh, that, that's good. And, and one thing that I've uh, gleaned from, from you know, this, this story of yours uh, and this life path of yours is just the concept of, of self-care, which I think is also an important piece that leaders have, have to, to do. Because a lot of the times we feel that you know, the burden is just all on us uh, and we don't necessarily take the time to take care of ourselves. What are you doing um, now uh, to practice that self-care Uh, To make sure that, you know, things like this in terms of, you know, being exhausted and just being drained don't happen as frequently. Yes. So good that you picked up on that because that is a big part of my life right now. The way I came back from that with my team was first by taking care of myself and having enough energy to really be present for the people that were present for me. And how I did that? Oh, at first I had no idea. Somebody asked me, what do you do just for yourself, just to make yourself happy? I couldn't answer the question in that first year. I was doing nothing just for myself. What made me happy in my mind was taking care of other people and doing the most I could for other people. So now I had to ask myself, how can I make myself happy? How can I give myself energy? Um, The first thing I did was therapy, to be honest. Um, I, uh, when all of this was happening, I was also going through a breakup. So I felt torn in a million directions. The team needed me. 
I was having a breakup. All these things were happening at the Branson Center. I was a new CEO and I just felt like I needed support to just hold center in the midst of all of that. And I highly recommend that for everyone who is in a leadership position. If you watch Billions, you know, Axe is not Axe without Wendy, right? Yep, that's very true. <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah. She's his right hand woman and his, his conscience and his guide. Yep. Yep. And just someone to help you hold center in the middle of the storm of things that are happening every day as a leader, the number of decisions you have to make, the number of people that depend on you, you have to, you need help to hold center. So that's the first thing I did. And that was the best thing I could have done for myself. And then outside of that, physical, taking care of my body, working out, massages, chiropractor, the mind-body connection is real. So now when I advise my clients, you're working out not to be fit and hot and sexy. That's a side effect of working out. You're working out for your mind to stay energetic and mentally fit to do all the things that you need to do especially now in the pandemic when people are struggling with anxiety and fear working out and getting those serotonin levels up in your brain extremely important just to be able to to think clearly right so therapy getting back on a regular consistent workout regime because working out it's not about how hard the workout is it's about the consistency you have to be doing it all the time that's true guided meditations backed by binaural beats is another thing that helped me a lot to just calm down and release anxiety binaural beats help lull your mind into a more meditative state so that you can relax and let go of the things that are happening in the day getting out in nature more seeing my friends i'm an enfp i am an extrovert i need to be around people so be it, not isolating myself and working, 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 but getting that glass of wine and that great meal and having a great conversation with friends. So doing just these, it's nothing groundbreaking. I didn't do anything groundbreaking. I just have to be consistent and recognize. And, and now I am very good at recognizing when I'm getting to that point of starting to go into that spiral of work and pulling myself back from the edge because it's a marathon, not a sprint. So if I can be there for the full journey, that's much better than sprinting and burning myself out and then being useless for weeks and months. True. Very good. <laughs> Very good. So, so um, I'll, I'll ask you this last question. Um, given everything that you know now, um, what would you advise your younger self or someone that's like you, uh, uh, that's younger? Um, what would you, what would you tell them today? I would tell my younger self to explore more, just slow down. It's okay to get a B. It's okay to get a C. Oh my God, you're not going to die. Take the time. <laughs> just explore things outside of academia. Have more fun. You know, I had a lot of fun growing up. I came from the Caribbean, so we know how to have fun. <laughs> but <laughs> in college especially, I was too, I went too hard on the academic side. Mm. So it's okay to take an easier class. You don't have to take the hardest classes to prove how smart you are. Take the easier class and have more fun outside of class. <laughs> That's good. That's really good. I, I, I like that. Um, a, a lot of type A you know, individuals sometimes find that difficult to do just to slow down. 
but I think you've done a good job uh, of doing that, especially throughout your career, um, learning that lesson of self-care and practicing it actively. Um, and, and so I, I think that that's wonderful, Lissandra. Um, so, so just before uh, we go, so I, I run this thing uh, called a rapid fire session uh, where I ask you just a few, uh, uh, five questions and you've got, you know, five to 10 seconds to answer them, giving your best answers. So we'll start off with uh, what book are you currently reading? Principles by Ray Dalio. Good. Um, what would you say is your favorite productivity hack or tool? It's called Monday Hour One. It's a system that um, Brooke, Castillo, Brooke Castillo from the Life Coach School came up with. And it's where you spend the first hour Monday morning planning, brain dumping everything from your brain and then putting it on your calendar throughout the week. Nice. So that for the rest of the week, you don't have to think about it. You just jump right in. That's good. That's good. What would you say is your favorite place to escape to? beach of course nice. <laughs> and in particular half moon resort in montego bay jamaica very good very good uh who would you say is your biggest uh cheerleader or supporter definitely my mother but also my brother who is my co-founder at soul career he's been my rock right now it's hard to be an entrepreneur in a pandemic but we're still going strong excellent and would you say that you are an early riser or a night owl early rise up by far i wake up at 5 a.m every day excellent well Sandra, thank you very much for joining joining us today all the way from jamaica um and you know your story has been incredible there there will definitely be someone that is inspired by by your life path and your journey and kudos to you for you know taking the plunge into entrepreneurship i do hope and pray that you succeed despite the current situation that we have we will get over this um and uh, you'll seize the opportunities because you know, I, I think that uh, based on your, your history, based on your, uh, your uh, experience and career, I, I think the sky is just the beginning for you. Uh, so thank you very much. Thank you so much, Aziz. This was awesome. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Made to Lead. If you enjoyed what you heard, please subscribe on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts, and please share with others. Also take a moment to leave a review as well. This helps us improve and also get discovered by others. You can also support by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Made to Lead Show and by visiting our website, madetolead.co. If you would like to be featured or know an amazing person of African descent whose story would be inspirational to others, I'd love to hear from you. Visit our website, madetolead.co slash get featured and send us a note. As you continue on your own leadership journey, remember that if you don't spread your wings, you'll never know how high or how far you can fly. So stretch your feathers because you were made to lead.